You're listening to Take Care from WRVO Public Media. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Catherine Loper. Our guest will clear up the definition of infertility from his point of view as a gynecologist at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Zarat Khan is with us to discuss infertility basics. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Khan. Thank you for having me. Let's just start with the basic definition of infertility. How would you describe what that is? So classically, infertility is defined as when a couple has been attempting to achieve a pregnancy and have not had success for about 12 months for women that are 35 years or less. And for couples where the women are 35 years or older, that has been classically defined as no success in six months of trying. So is it strictly those time cues that if a woman or a couple is having trouble conceiving, they should go by? Or there are other signs that they should get some help trying to figure out why they're having trouble conceiving? That's an excellent question. I always sort of joke with patients and say that I'm probably the last person to ask that question from since I'm very biased because I see people with infertility. But I think the dogma is shifting and it's the definitions are not as dogmatic anymore. And I think more and more we're talking about infertility as being a disease and a disease that impacts quality of life. And in my opinion, I think a couple needs to seek fertility evaluation anytime they feel like they're not getting to their goals. So waiting that six month or 12 months, in my opinion, is a little bit torturous for some couples. And unfortunately, most of our medical community hasn't sort of gotten to that new state of defining infertility. And I still time and time and again see couples that have been anxiously waiting for those 12 months or six months to be over so that they could be referred to my clinic. And so I think that that is a timely question and a very important one as well, because I personally believe that we should be allowing couples to seek further advanced fertility care if they feel like they're not achieving their goals in two to three months. Two to three months. That's interesting because I think that is more progressive than what some doctors would say. And I do want to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to get some more of the basics out of the way. What percentage of women do have some trouble conceiving? Because I think a lot of women see this as an abnormal thing. Sure. I'm going to basically sort of agree with your question, but also add a little bit to that. I feel like we should be talking about couples and not women, because I believe that infertility is an issue or a problem of the couple. And we tend to forget about the men in the equation quite a bit. And 20% of all couples that we will see will actually have some form of male factor infertility. One of the things that I preach a lot is that infertility is a couple's medical problem, though it becomes a woman's social burden to bear. So when I talk about infertility, I usually say about 15% of couples will have some form of trouble in achieving a pregnancy. How is that related to age? Because you did mention that after 35, there's a different time frame we look at than before 35. Absolutely. So one of the hard things that we have to deal with in an infertility clinic is dealing with ovarian reserve because it's a finite number. Women are born with a set number of eggs, give or take about 2 million at the time of birth. And on an average, the average woman will undergo 200 menstrual cycles, give or take, prior to getting into perimenopause. And so we have this limited amount of time that we can then utilize to our advantage. But that decline in ovarian age, unfortunately, doesn't go hand in hand with advancement of chronologic age. 
So we do tell patients, even though it's very unfair, but we do say that when you're at the prime and peak of your chronologic age in your mid-30s, unfortunately, ovarian age tends to take a big hit. And 35 is the number that's been classically used. But if we look at more and more data, we can see very young women with diminished ovarian reserve or decreased egg supplies, and sometimes older women with good egg supplies. And so 35 is sort of that line in the sand that's drawn because we usually start seeing an effect after 35, and in my opinion, more so after 38 and excessively after the age of 40. So maternal age or the female's age in a couple does dictate a lot of the treatments that we can cater or provide to a couple. And have you seen a change in the rate of infertility over time? People do talk about infertility or the incidence of infertility rising. But when we look at overall numbers and epidemiologic data and global numbers, fortunately that has still remained fairly fixed or within the same number at that 10 to 15 percent overall. And you mentioned ovarian reserve. What are some of the other most typical causes of infertility? When we talk about infertility, we sort of put things into a couple of different categories. I think one of the biggest ones that we always tend to forget to talk about is male factor infertility or some issues with semen analysis or semen parameters in the male part of the couple if it's a heterosexual couple. Other things that are very important are the ovarian reserve or the robustness or how much the ovaries will respond to a treatment. And that's something that's fairly genetic and we cannot change parameters of ovarian reserve, but we definitely want to check for them to make sure that the person has adequate amount of egg supply. There are other very telltale characteristic things that we want to look for, and those are making sure the uterus is anatomically normal and the uterus doesn't have any sort of lesions like fibroids or polyps that could be playing a role in infertility. And we want to make sure that the female in the couple has patent fallopian tubes so that they could be able to carry the egg from the ovary into the uterus. You mentioned genetics. So are there some genetic links to infertility, either in men or women? And, you know, should men and women be checking with their parents to see if there were any issues, you know, in their family? Genetic history and a family history is exceedingly important from a couple that we see at their first intake. There are definitely certain genetic diseases that can predispose a person or an individual to infertility. Some of the most common ones are things that are chromosomal abnormalities. In women, most commonly Turner syndrome, and in men, most commonly Klinefelter syndrome, are two classic ones that lead to infertility or subfertility. There are other very, very common genetic things like fragile X syndrome and other diseases that are similar that are genetic in their origin that can have a severe impact on sperm quality or production as well as egg quality in production. So I think getting a holistic history, family history, as well as an infertility history of the family is very important. And then based on a case-by-case basis, we can make those decisions of whether that couple would warrant or benefit by seeing a geneticist versus not. Is that difficult, though? Because, I mean, infertility wasn't always talked about, and it wasn't always talked about in ways that are very precise or useful. You know, people don't talk about things like miscarriages, and, you know, it might often be hard for couples trying to conceive to know what happened in their families. 
I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Time and time again, we see couples in our clinic that say, well, we don't talk about that stuff on the dinner table, or I'm not sure I can ask my mom or I can check with grandma. So you're absolutely right. You know, the area of medicine that we work in not necessarily is a a common speaking point amongst friends or social circles. So I do agree that we are dealing with subjects that are very, very personal. And I think that's why having a very honest conversation and a good rapport with your patients is going to help. And then I think one of the things that I always am preaching in my clinic is that we need to start talking more about these issues. We need to start talking about pregnancy loss. We need to start talking about the importance of infertility because we're not only creating awareness, we're actually helping these couples that feel like they're on an isolated island. If they don't hear that other people have been through something impactful or life-altering like infertility treatment, that feeling of isolation kicks in, and I feel like that in itself is a big blow for the morale with couples that are dealing with infertility. And as you said, treat it as a medical issue, as a disease, and not as a, as a flaw. You're absolutely right. And I think that's what we preach every day and we're trying to fight every day in saying that the World Health Organization, the WHO, defines infertility as a medical disease. And so when such a big governing body describes it as a disease, we're trying to fight for appropriate insurance coverage for such issues as well, and also looking at it as a disease, because it is a disease that impacts quality of life tremendously. And back to the causes of infertility, is there ever a time where we just don't know the cause for certain? I mean, there have been so many advances, but do you still run into cases where it's just like we just aren't 100% sure why this is happening? I mean, we would love to say that we can answer all questions, but unfortunately, we, meaning medical science, hasn't advanced enough where where we are able to specifically answer each question. So when I do see couples and when we look at statistics overall, about one in five couples or about 20% of the patients that we see in the clinic don't have any obvious reason for infertility. When we do all testing on the male and the female and make sure that there's adequate sperm, egg supply, patent fallopian tubes, and a uterus that's normal on ultrasound, we usually will call that unexplained infertility. And that's about 20% of couples that we see in the clinic. Now, we know that we are calling it unexplained infertility. We know that there's probably something wrong that otherwise can't be determined with the preliminary round of testing. There are methods to deal with unexplained infertility, and there are well-established protocols for that that we can reserve for a different conversation. But it's important to know that in about one in five couples, we may never know the reason for why they're not getting to their goal, but we can still help them achieve their goal by increasing their odds of pregnancy and using more aggressive forms of fertility treatment. That's really interesting. What research are you most excited about that's underway now to, you know, maybe try to get at the root of some of those causes that we don't know or come up with more ways to uh, help couples conceive? One of the things that we want to look at is to make sure that the embryos that we select for a transfer are the best quality embryos. And there's one of several different ways of choosing a particular embryo to transfer But most of that is either done on looking at the embryo and then grading the physical appearance of the embryo. What I think we're going to start seeing in the next decade or two decades is the use of artificial intelligence that will be able to 
tell us which embryo would be the best one to transfer. There are several different people, including ourselves, working on looking at how embryos are divided and how long the embryo takes to divide from, say, one to two cell and so on and so forth. And not just look at the time at which they divide, but with the pattern of division, making sure a one cell goes to a beautiful two cell and so on and so forth. Now, right now, the human eye is judging all of that. But I think in the near future, we're going to use some bioinformatics software and we're going to use artificial intelligence and feed thousands and thousands of patients' worth data to this sort of smart computer that will then decide algorithms and devise different ways of deciding on its own which embryos will be destined for a pregnancy. So I think that's something very, very exciting that is going to be upcoming in the next decade or so. There are also some additional things that we're doing with embryos, which is genetic testing of the embryos. And right now, we still are using that commercially as clinical standard of care. But I think there's a lot of room for improvement as we move forward in really trying to decrease the false positives that we get from that genetic testing and pick the best embryo for a transfer for a successful pregnancy. So in the world of IVF, I think those are some very exciting things that we're looking forward to that is really going to increase the chances of our couples getting pregnant. Well, that is really exciting. And I was not thinking we were going to talk about artificial intelligence in this interview about infertility. So that's really, really interesting. I really appreciate your insights over where infertility stands in the world of medicine, as well as just in our world today. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Zarat Khan of the Mayo Clinic. Thank you so much. And, you know, we tell all our patients that once you're in the fertility clinic, this is the twilight zone and the sky's the limit to sort of think about things. And in the year 2020, we're really, really looking forward to further advancing all the medical and clinical applications that we have in really helping our patients get to their goals.